Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome into the Ots and Audibles podcast. Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on this Monday edition uh, of the podcast. A very busy Monday uh, for us and for you, the Oregon Duck fan, because, hey, uh, you've got a women's game that starts their basketball season off this afternoon. We've got a men's game following that night. Uh, we've also got Dan Lanning's press conference, which there will certainly <clears throat> be a ton of discussion points from that one. We'll discuss some of the rumors with Dan Lanning on this podcast. Um, maybe we'll even discuss it with him. Um, but it's that part of the year now where you've got college football playoffs. You've got discussion points. You've got postseason award discussion points. You've got Pac-12 championship run. You've got college basketball. Let's dive right into it because there's a ton to get to on the show. It is busy time. I was just looking at the calendar. Like The next six weeks are where we – Really put our, uh, our our full effort in. Not going to be going to be some sleepless nights. Going to be a lot of work, but it'll be fun. And there's going to be a lot of fun things to cover, including this upcoming football game, which for the, kind of the first half of the show is going to be upcoming game with Washington um, on Saturday. We've got a kickoff time, 4 p.m. I prefer that to 8 p.m. So go us. Um, and then the second half is going to get into some bigger picture stuff. But the first one from at Oregon Duck Fan 05. How concerned should we be against the UW passing game, especially if DJ Johnson can't go? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Um, and I want to include Jamal Hill missing the first half uh, in this question as well. Oregon could be without a couple of key guys on pass downs. Uh, Washington, they're you know they they uh they, their offense is heavily 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 reliant on the pass, more so than any team in the country. Forty five pass attempts per game. They lead the country in pass yardage, about 370 per game. 
this is a prolific pass offense, if, if you want to define one. One of the more prolific the conference has seen in a while. Michael Penix, again, has been – he leads the country in all sorts of passing stats in part because of what I just laid out there. They throw the football a lot. 45 pass attempts per game. Let, let, let that sink in. And they've been winning some of these games. And they still throw the football 35, 40, 50 times. So um, Oregon will be facing a aerial attack on Saturday. There's no question about it. Washington will throw the football. They will throw the ball throughout the game with high consistency. And if Oregon can't stop it, they're going to keep doing it. And even if Oregon does show a knack for defending it, um, there's not really much of an alternative. Washington does run the ball okay around the goal line on a short yardage, but this is not a rush-heavy offense by any means. Um, to the question about DJ not being able to go, I think that's potentially pretty significant. Um, yeah. didn't, they didn't really get after Shrout too much on Saturday in Boulder. Didn't have a sack. Had a couple of quarterback hurries. DJ leads this team in sacks. Um, obviously, for those listening who aren't familiar, we don't think he made the trip. We at least didn't ID him pregame. Um, it's possible he he made the trip and we missed him. We didn't see Chase Coda, but we saw him after the game, so it's possible it's another area like that. But um, it was notable that the inability to get after the quarterback in this one, and we also have to note, I think this is a pretty impressive stat from the Washington perspective, 45 pass attempts per game this season, yet – seven sacks allowed all season um their their sack to pass attempt ratio is like 65 or something like that um this this is they've done a really good job of protecting Penix. um it's an offense that throws it underneath a little bit throws it deep a little bit Oregon will be tested all areas i think the jamal hill one could almost be just as big especially early in this game if oregon tries to kind of put its foot down it might be difficult to do so if with hill unlikely to play um, because of the targeting suspension I will note the replacement is likely just a lot more Brian Addison, who has been one of the best defensive players on the team and, frankly, in the conference. BFF has him as the second-best defensive player in the league, which I, I, that seems very high, but I think this, the, the kind of the performances have played out pretty well from Brian. So I think you'll see more of him, and uh, and that might not be a terrible thing on, on in certain instances, but no Jamal, no DJ. You'd certainly like to be full strength going into this one. And and as the question asker posed it, you, I think you should be relatively concerned. Like, I think this should be something you're very aware of going into this game because of how Washington plays offensive football. Yeah, oh, 100%. This is, this is concerning. Um, it's something that I've talked about on this podcast for multiple weeks. Arizona, Washington State, you know, teams that really throw the football a lot. And Nobody does it more than Washington. I mean, Eric just went through all the stats. Um, there's only been two games this season where Michael Penix hasn't thrown over 40 times. Uh, they just – they throw the rock, man. That's exactly what they do. Um, over 3,300 yards of offense through the air. And, and they're, the receivers are pretty talented. They're not the greatest – I don't think they're the best in the conference, but I think that they're talented. They get, they get open. Um, you know, the, the sack stat is important, but Washington does run a lot of underneath plays, get the ball out quick doesn't give a lot of time to a defensive line to get in there and try to sack Penix, which makes it more important that Jamal Hill can't go. I side with Eric and thinking that Jamal Hill is almost just as important as DJ Johnson in this sense because of his ability to command the defense. I think he's the best safety in Oregon this season so far. Um, Bennett Williams is right there with him. Um, we don't talk a lot about Jamal Hill, and I've said this the last two podcasts. We don't talk a lot about him, which means he's doing his job in the secondary um, his suspension is going to be 
impactful, absolutely, for the first half. Um, BA has played really well, and I know he's the second highest graded uh, player in the Pac-12 per PFF, but he's not playing nearly as much as Jamal Hill was playing. You know, he's a specialty, like, third down and long guy or a passing situation. But that helps Oregon because, theoretically, every down in this game is going to be a passing situation for Washington. Um, Oregon's defense has been up and down with the pass game. Uh, didn't look great against Washington State. Cameron Ward probably had his best game of the season against Oregon. Uh, a lot of that was probably due to missed tackling and yards after the catch more than just Ward throwing the ball downfield. Um, Penix is certainly a capable passer. He's got a good deep ball. He can hit guys in stride. There are moments where he where he's a little wild and throws in the coverage. Um, it's a little different than how Oregon's, Oregon's offense operates with Bo Nix and really looking to take the checkdowns and things like that. Bo, uh, Penix will take shots downfield, even if they're covered, because it's just a really aggressive offense. And if Oregon can capitalize on those opportunities to make mistakes, even though Penix doesn't throw a lot of interceptions this season, that could help overall. But, um, yeah, I mean, the over-under came out today. It's 71 and a half. Vegas expects this to be a high-scoring game, and so do I. Um, I'll play just maybe the devil's advocate here because when you look at, um, obviously UW's passing attack is going to be an issue as you guys both ran through. Roma Dunze is the league's best receiver from a statistical standpoint with 858 yards. He has six touchdowns. Um, and then just behind him is Jalen McMillan who has 49 catches for 670 yards, six touchdowns. They're two top receivers, uh, have more yards than Oregon's top receiver, Troy Franklin. Now they throw the ball a lot more than Oregon does. They take more shots. That That's notable. You have to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also Jalen Polk, who's outside the top 10, but has 433 yards receiving so far, four touchdowns. Um, they are a pass-heavy team, and their three re- top guys at receiver – are all pretty good. I think you could argue that they probably have the best receiving top three receivers in the league. Maybe um, I, I don't know if it's a definitive, but they're in the discussion point. In the, in the discussion, and yeah. you you look at a previous matchup, Oregon versus Arizona. They throw the ball a ton. They have three really good receivers, two of which are in the top three in the conference in receiving yards this season. And in that game at Arizona. The, the, the Wildcat passing attack did not do really any damage uh, that was lethal to Oregon. They scored, sure, they had some big plays, but Oregon kept them in check. Now, to your guys' point, Jaylen, you know, Jamal Hill being in that game probably helped more than D.J. Johnson, but D.J. Johnson's pressures was also a, an important factor in that one. So Oregon's played a, an opponent like this, probably not as good. I would take Penix every single day of the week over Jaden Delora. Um, but they've played an opponent this season that's similar in how they throw the ball down the field and what they want to do with their receivers and whatnot, and they kept them in check. And so I I think this game being at home helps with Oregon. Washington hasn't played an opponent with a hostile environment this season. Um, I think their road games are ASU, UCLA, and I want to say Cal – and none of those places compare to what Austin will be like. So I, it's going to be an issue for sure. But I also think 
history says that this team has played a, a similar opponent, a similar style of an opponent, and did fairly well against that that team. Yeah, and I want to be clear. I'm not at all saying I, I'm picking Washington to win this game. I think we're going to win, sure. and the line is almost two scores. I wouldn't be surprised if they cover. I've got a one of my close buddies. Don't hold this against me. As a diehard Washington fan, he texted me after this weekend's games and said, "I think Washington is probably going to lose by like three scores." So, like, I, I, my, my response is to: Should you be concerned about the Washington pass game? Which I think the answer is yes. Should you be concerned about losing this game? Probably a little bit. Right, this is a rivalry game. We'll get to that in the next question. Washington's got some some skills players that can cause problems. They got a really good quarterback. They're also not a team that has looked, you know, incredible of late. I mean, they barely beat Oregon State. I understand the weather played a part in that game, and 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 we'll kind of see how this game plays out. But I'm, I'm relatively confident Oregon's going to win this game. Um, I just think you have to be aware going in of like what sure. what what the, what the opposition does, which is they throw the football a lot, and Oregon it could be without. It's top pass rusher. We'll see with DJ as the week goes on. Um, and they will, for the first half, be without one of their top safeties, which, again, could be almost nullified by the fact that Brian Addison is really good on passing downs. And maybe this was a week where you would have seen B.A. play a ton regardless, just because you know Washington's going to throw it a lot. And Addison's, according to PFF, at least your best pass defender in coverage um, on the team. So. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to be like, oh, Washington's going to score a thousand points and Oregon can't sure. stop them. But I do think it has to be acknowledged. That this is going to be a, a, a potential concern, a potential challenge. Um, so we jump to the second one. From Indoctrination. I think it's like a, a play on words of indoctrination. Nice. I like that. While I'm certain we're preparing to play against Oregon, as Dan says, how much do you think he understands the assignment with regard to what the fans want to see in this game? Hashtag Otson Audibles. Dan was asked several times about this game and the rivalry, and uh, yes, he understands what rivalries are. He believes in them, as he said. <laughs> that was a pretty good line from, from landing on Saturday. Um, you know, uh, I want to read a quote he gave here in regards to this matchup, um, I think it's pretty apparent that this is a rivalry game coming up. I guess we can pretend like it's not, but it matters. Does that mean we prepare different or treat it like a different situation? No. If you go out here and play the circumstance, the event, rather than the game, you're going to play. You're not going to play to your ability. Do I acknowledge that there is a rivalry coming up? Absolutely. Do we have a plan and preparation in a in a way we want to execute? Absolutely. I have a lot of respect for that team that we're playing. That we're playing a really good football team. Um, I think that pretty much establishes where Dan's head is going in. Like, I, I think um, it's interesting, and, and Matt did a good job of kind of prefacing this question in a way that kind of led to this response of Mario downplayed rivalries publicly, but obviously, as we recall from what that locker room looked like last year in Seattle, played him up quite large to his team, right? You know, kind of was... was was, you know, and, and of course, we won't see, and I, probably for the better, what Dan is going to be like in his locker room this weekend after a potential win. But I don't know if it's going to be quite what we saw from Mario in terms of beating the chest and saying Washington's everything wrong with college football, F those guys, that kind of stuff. Um, this is a, a, a game, though, where you go in and you have a, a head coach who's never played in this rivalry series. And I think he's saying all of the right things in terms of understanding it. And I think if you come to Oregon, it's pretty easy and it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to understand this game is different. You talk to anybody around the program. You talk to the players on your team. 
you talk to the the donors and the fans and the coaches who've been around the program, like a guy like a, a Tony Washington or a Koa Kai, who are grad assistants on this team who played here, I think they could convey very clearly what this game means and why it matters. And I think based upon what Dan said here, he gets it. I don't know if there's a whole lot else to say in terms of like, if he understands what the assignment is. Yeah, I think he gets what the assignment is. I think he wants to go out and win this game for for, for, for one clear reason, which is to keep yourself in the contention to win the conference and, and for that college football playoff part. But he also understands like doing so will, will mean a lot to this community, which hates losing to Washington and really has enjoyed its, you know, winning 15 of 17 over the Huskies over the last almost 20 years. Oh, yeah. he Dan understands the assignment. I mean, he believes in rivalries like he, I guess – uh, the way he said it made it sound like you know that's that he believes in rivalries like he believes in ghosts which i don't know if dan believes in ghosts but dan if you want to clarify your 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 standing point on ghosts i'd love to hear it this is i mean yeah like eric just mentioned this is very clear very clearly a rivalry you don't have to look too hard you don't have to look too far either um the boosters the players current players former players that he's talked to coaches around the league that he's talked to um despite Oregon and Oregon State having, a, a, I don't know, which one is bigger. It feels like in football, it's definitely Oregon and Washington. Um, and it's, it's, not, it's not hard for Dan to realize that this is, this is a big game for obvious reasons of staying in contention, but um, I think even more obvious reasons of just beating Washington. I, I don't know, maybe not at this point, but I think for, for a bit there, Oregon would have taken – you know, a, a victory over Washington than a lot of other things in a, in a season. Um, just for, even though they've won 15 of the last 17 years, uh, it just, something, there's just something more about beating Washington than it is with any, any other team. Um, and I think Dan understands the assignment. I don't know if he's going to play it up that much. I don't think a lot of coaches do. Again, he's, he's cut from the Kirby Smart, Nick Saban cloth. So he's going to acknowledge it just like any, any coach really would, except for Mario, who Mario did after the game, but he'll acknowledge it, but I don't think he's going to play it up too much just because, you know, he's, he's a respectful guy. He has respect for the program up there. Um, I'm, I'm just interested to see if he'll say that they're playing Washington because even though I think three questions were asked about Washington in his press conference, he didn't say Washington once. He just called him that team and maybe he'll call him the team up North. Um, I think I'm most interested to see that. I don't, I don't think it's going to be, too much rah-rah, let's go beat Washington to the press and to us as the media um, in the locker room. I'm sure it's going to be, but I, he, he understands the assignment. It'd be, it'd be unbelievably hard for him not to. I think it's one line of questioning. I asked him two UW-centric questions. James Crepe of the Oregonian asked the third. He'll certainly get a lot more tonight. He'll get a lot more uh, on – Wednesday, the coaches show that they do, we'll bring it up. Maybe he does a national hit. So we'll learn more about it. Um, but just from my very early sample size, I think this is the perfect blend um, because fans did not like Chip Kelly's, hey, every game is a rivalry. Every game is the Super Bowl. This is the biggest game of the year because it's this week's game. He hardly ever acknowledged the, the rivalry. And then there was the Mario where they certainly didn't talk a lot pregame, but once that game was over, the staff made it very well known that they that they beat Washington, that they they did not like Washington, and this wasn't a Jimmy Lake thing. This was a, a Washington thing. Um, the Jimmy Lake thing was just one of the the, the chapters of that. Mike Bellotti was very open about the disdain for Washington 
Um, he was more reserved than Mario, but he was open about it. Helfrich was more of Chip Kelly. I think this is the perfect blend of both. He's acknowledging that it's a rivalry, but he's also acknowledging that, hey, like if you get caught up in the off-field stuff, we're going to lose. And he's he's kind of blending chips. Hey, this is still you know any game of the week or any game of the season, but it also means more, and we acknowledge that it means more to the fan base, and we you know we we will be prepared. I thought it was interesting his first time talking about it um, about Washington. He didn't. It wasn't like uh, I wasn't trying to bait him into anything, but he he definitely came out in that one and said, hey, and I will guarantee you our players will be ready for this game. Like he hasn't really said that up until that moment for any other game. Like he was very clear that they will be ready for the, for the job at hand for, for the rivalry game against Washington. I thought, I thought that was notable. And I know he won't look at it this way, but when you kind of measure the different coaches who've won here, everyone with the exception of Helfrich, his final season and Taggart without Justin Herbert, we have to acknowledge has just dominated Washington. Yeah, like, everybody has. I mean, you look through it. Um, I mean, Bilotti Except won. For yeah, but yeah, I mentioned that because he didn't have Herbert. I mean, he didn't have Herbert in that game. But you look at it. I mean, everybody's just dominated. I mean, Bilotti won his last five. Chip never lost. Helfrich won his first three before his the, the, the team just totally unraveled, and that happened to align with the one time Washington was actually very good and made the playoff that year. Whatever you want to say about Cristobal, he dominated Washington, off the field and on the field. And I think if you're if you're landing, of course, you're not measuring. At least you won't publicly say it. You're, you're, you you want to make sure you continue the tradition of winning this rivalry and dominating it because it means a lot both to what we assessed earlier. You know, kind of said earlier, which is, hey, these programs don't like each other. He knows what he's inherited, but it also matters in terms of recruiting and having dominance in this part of the country. And Oregon has dominated the recruiting up here in part because they continue to just kick Washington's ass on the field. I mean, fifteen of seventeen. For two programs that are pretty respected nationally, right? Like this isn't mm-hmm. this isn't like you know uh, I'm trying to think of what like a this isn't Ohio State dominating Rutgers or something like that. Good or, one. That's what I was gonna say too. Yeah, just like or, or or you know Florida over Vanderbilt. They're just something where it's like you're in the same conference, but you know you're gonna kick the crap out of them. Like Washington is going to be whatever the future of whatever conference Oregon is in a, a pretty competitive program for a long time. Like this isn't a crappy program. And Oregon has just absolutely had their number for almost 20 years. And uh, I think it's very, very clear that's a trend you don't want to see lost on your watch. If you're Dan and you're here and you win every big game, but you continue to lose, but you lose to Washington over and over again, regardless of how long he's here, that's going to be one thing that's kind of held against you. Again, regardless of how long you are here, because this rivalry means a lot. And that could be the reason why Washington elevates itself. Because again, I think a big part of the reason Oregon and Washington have kind of gone in different directions is because the head to heads just haven't been very competitive again for like 20 consecutive years almost. So mm-hmm. I think it's fun. It's I'm just pumped by the way, to be in rivalry week. We're, we're basically heading into three straight rivalry weeks, which is fun because Oregon and Utah have, have kind of fostered a new, a new rivalry. And then obviously Oregon, Oregon state to finish the season. And then, Hey, it could be, Oregon USC, it could be Oregon UCLA in the conference championship game. I'd say Oregon UCLA have a bit of a, a rivalry just because of the chip element, and then Oregon USC obviously have a, a very clear rivalry, especially recruiting. Haven't played a ton on the field of late. Oregon has had we, the, has had the kind of the number there, but that could be another. You could have four straight games here, which are basically against rivals. Do, do we consider Utah a rival for Oregon? 
I'm just saying the, re- the recent, the recent kind of ill will. <clears throat> the recent ill will. Yeah, I think is has created kind of a fun, a fun natural rivalry just because they've been mm-hmm. playing for conference. They've been good. Yeah, both teams have been good, and they've been meeting up in the Pac-12 championship game. I'd consider that a rivalry. It's like I don't know. It's, it's a short kind of like. It's a short, yeah, short term, but it looks like it could potentially, ha- or excuse me, looks like it could have the potential to move into a long term rivalry as long as Oregon and Utah continue being the two best teams in the Pac-12, which they have been for you know for the last five years. I mean, I don't really, not really counting the COVID season, but um, I do have. There's there's one thing I want to kind of change the subject to of kickoff times for Oregon and Utah and USC and UCLA. One of these two games, much to the dismay of us, our group, our Ops and Audibles podcast, one of the two games will be starting at 7.30 Pacific time. The other will start at 5. So either way, this is going to – one of those games are going to be late. So this is – deep. it was deeply upsetting news to me when I saw it and I had, just had to share it out <laughs> because it's too late to start a game like that. We've been uh, – I don't think it's a rivalry yet because – not to go back to that, I just wanted to get my piece in it. Yeah, um, I think rivalries are associated with hate, or maybe hate's too much of a, of a word because the definition is bad. But um, I don't know if Oregon fans dislike Utah fans even close to Washington or Oregon State. Um, I think last year certainly went a long ways in developing some of that, but up until maybe the Pac 12 championship game. I think Utah, I think Oregon fan base looked at Utah as like, hey, we respect them. They're good, but we don't like dislike them. Um, so may, maybe if, if Utah comes in here and beats Oregon and knocks them out of that playoff discussion point, you know, and, and runs their mouth, then yeah, things could, could go that way. I just think this is, these are two teams that are really good consistently and there's a mutual respect towards them whereas Washington if Oregon loses every game of the season but Washington and Oregon State they'll go you know fans will go oh, at least we beat our two rivals I don't think they say that about Utah well I think you can classify rivalries differently obviously nobody listening to this podcast would say Utah is the same type of rival as as Utah and and or sorry as Oregon State and Washington and and, and maybe we can I find a different word, but I do think it's notable. Like the last two times the Pac-12 has had a team positioned to make the college football playoff, one of these teams has knocked the other out in the conference. You know what I mean? Oregon, mm-hmm. Oregon was able to knock Utah out in the 2019 conference championship game. They would have played in the playoff if not for that. And then this last year, Oregon, we all remember that game in Salt Lake City. So yeah, you, you can call it sure. a rivalry. We can call it something else. I also know when we were doing the looking at the season ahead podcasts, we all circled Utah as like potentially the biggest game of the season. It was the one we all predicted Oregon. 100%. So yeah, if, if it's not a rivalry, it's a game that everybody is really excited to be at and, and to watch. Season altering game. hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But right. with, with how many season altering games these two programs have shared, I just feel like it's a natural rivalry. Sure. There's not <laughs> as developing. much hate and and vitriol towards Utah fans as there is towards Washington and Oregon State fans by Oregon fans. But I think some of that has to do, has to do with geographic issues as well. I mean, Corvallis is just up the street. Seattle is obviously the biggest city in, in Washington, and that just makes for a natural, like, hatred with the, at the border war. Um, not so much with Washington State because they're basically in Idaho. But Utah is its own separate area, and – I don't know. I just feel like 
it just has morphed into this natural rivalry of these two really good teams. I don't think it necessarily has to have a history um, like it is with Washington, like it is with Oregon State. But as long as these two programs continue to do well, you know, that's going to be the, the calendar circle game on on both these programs um, just because of that, that's going to be the ultimate test. You know, you'll have years where Washington is good and Oregon State's better than, than, better than average or, you know, USC finally decided to jump into the party and so did UCLA. But last five years, it's like, you know, Oregon and Oregon and Utah have been these two just much better programs than everybody else. And that, that calendar date is, has been circled for the last couple of years for both of these. So I think, I think it's more of a respect rivalry than anything else. Not, not so much hate. I think we should, uh, I'd like to hear from people in the comments on this one. Just kind of like, what do you, how do you define a rivalry? Is Oregon-Utah a rivalry? Maybe we throw it up on a Twitter poll. I'm, I'm, I think I probably lean like it's a developing rivalry, but hasn't really had enough. Sure. Like, because I, I was the one to introduce it as a rivalry because I feel like right now these two programs are rivals to win a conference championship. These are two programs that determine who wins. But like, there is some validity to the fact that like there is, like I think these teams have played like 17 times ever because they're relatively new conference uh, partners. So there, there is that element of it. But when these two teams play, it means a lot. And I know Oregon fans entered this season, a lot of them looking at Utah and this game saying, that's a game we have to win. And that could be our toughest, not could be, that will be our toughest game on the schedule. Mm-hmm. All right, let's, let's go with one more before we head to break. From at Drew Goalie. Given the nature of the two previous opponents, what can we take away big picture from wins against Cal and Colorado? You know, I think that's what's really kind of interesting about this part of the season is that Oregon's about to play, and we just said, rival or not, three capable quality football teams, teams that either will be ranked when Oregon plays them or have been ranked recently right oregon state dropped out after losing to washington washington is ranked this week utah will certainly be ranked going into that game oregon state could get back in the rankings depending on how things play out regardless good teams and oregon also just played arguably two of the worst three four five teams in the pac-12 i mean if, if you're being honest there's a huge gap from about the top six to the bottom six i think it's james Crepe who, who posted that tweet of like the bottom six have one win all season over the top six, and it was that Arizona State win over Washington. Um, so what do you really make up from these games? They weren't very competitive. I think I take away, especially from the Colorado game, this is a team, and we talked about knowing your assignment, understanding an assignment earlier. That was, a, 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 I think, a good turn of phrase. That's a Dan Lanning phrase and in, indoctrination uh, introduced into the podcast today. I think Oregon knew its assignment in both those games. And they took care of it against Colorado, and they did a pretty good job of taking care of it against Cal, aside from some early stuff that you didn't like and some late stuff you didn't like. So I, I think I'm looking at it more like this, of like the trajectory and the momentum of a season. Oregon has some very positive momentum. They didn't let these lesser opponents stop that momentum or slow that momentum, right? They, they, they continued to win. They've won eight in a row. We knew they weren't going to lose either game, right? We didn't think they'd lose either game. But I think we would all admit, like, if – Cal played Oregon like they just played USC, and it was a one-score game where it was close late, we would probably be sitting here kind of feeling a little bit like, okay, if Cal can play Oregon this close, why can't Washington or Utah or Oregon State who are clearly much better teams? So my, my opinion is they took care of business. They won all those games by 
well, they won both those games, we should say, by, you know, three scores or more. And obviously the Colorado game by a lot more. And I don't come away feeling like this team is lacking momentum. I think this team is certainly struggling in certain areas. I continue to be concerned with just pass defense, with red zone offense at times, with pre-snap penalties that get in the way and slow down drives, with um, with the punting. Like, But these are yeah. all relatively small things. I'm not sitting here saying – I mean, the pass defense is the most concerning one, especially this week. Yep. But like – these aren't. I'm not here going like. I don't know if they can move the football. I know they can move the football. I think everyone's really confident they can move the football, and they continue to show that against Cal. They continue to show that against Colorado. They scored points in those games, um, and the defense, better for better or worse, made a lot of stops. You know, yeah. like it was oh, never not always beautiful, not always pretty, but they forced field goals. They got turnovers, uh, turnovers on downs. Like they they took care of business. So, I think for me, it's just like they didn't let themselves lose the momentum. You can easily lose momentum sometimes when you go into these games against lesser opponents. You don't play up to the standard. Um, and, and again, I, I think USC barely beating Cal or winning by six points is probably a little bit alarming for some USC fans. Probably a little bit of, a little bit of, of chatter about, well, that's kind of not great because they're going into their own stretch run here. And for Oregon, there's not really you can't really have those, those conversations because they beat Cal by three scores and they beat Colorado by, what, six? So that's kind of where I where I see it. I think those are the things you can take away from those games. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think it's the the big picture of what you can take away from wins over Cal and Colorado is just that they took care of business. You know, they were able to get most of their defensive second or backups again against Cal, a few offensive backups, and then both sides of the ball get their backups in against Colorado. Those are games where, you know, don't disrespect to Cal or Colorado, especially not Colorado, but they're no, those aren't. Those just aren't good teams. That's what you should do to Colorado. That's why Oregon was a, a 31 and a half or 30 and a half point favorite, whatever you got the line at going into that game. They were expected to absolutely dominate the game. And they did. That's exactly what, what they needed to do. That's exactly what they had to do to keep the momentum going. Um, you know, Bonex had another just great day at the office. Um, I'm there were there were parts of the game where you'd say, ah, oh, well, they weren't as sharp here, they weren't as sharp there for for both of these matchups. But um, you know, they they came back with uh, with a resounding effort against Cal after it looked like, oh, it might be one of those Cal games where they just they just play Oregon well. They just stuff their stuff their offense. They're not able to move the ball like they should. Um, they just came back and kicked butt and won that game handily. And then against Colorado, there were some pre-snap penalties, maybe a fourth down or a, a fourth down that they didn't get, a red zone inefficiencies again. Um, it just didn't stop them. Uh, it was, you know, not their best offensive game in the year, I wouldn't say, but defensively they forced some turnovers. I think three forced turnovers with the late fumble, you know, two interceptions from Christian Gonzalez. They just, they just did what they needed to do. And in the last few years, it hasn't necessarily seemed like that against the lesser competition of the PAC 12 or whoever is in their out of conference schedule. Um, they just did really well. And I think that's, that's the biggest takeaway from these two games is, yeah, they took care of business, and yeah, they had their some of their issues on pass defense and things like that with the linebackers. Which, but that has that's been a thing all year long. That's not necessarily something new. If a new issue were to pop up and arise from these two games, then I could then you you, you know you can come back a little concerned. But um, two road games, two huge victories. Uh, it's just taking care of business. That's exactly what they should have done. I think Jared just touched on it. At the end for me. Um, taking care of business, doing what you should have done is you play two of the worst teams in the conference 
you win by 15 or more points, 20 or more points for both games, um, or 30, now that I think about it. And you look at what other teams in the conference that are up near the top have done against these teams. I mean, Washington won by seven points, or USC won by six points against Cal the same day. And you saw Washington struggle against um, Arizona. You saw Oregon dominate Arizona. You saw USC struggle putting away Arizona. You saw Oregon dominate Arizona. I know Arizona's not in the discussion here, but that's another team that's kind of in the same sphere as those two teams. And I just look at this and say, Oregon has has won, I think, five games now in a row by 15 or more points. Some of these games have come against the worst teams in the league. And we've seen other contenders for a Pac-12 championship struggle to put away opponents. USC had Cal up by like 20. And when I woke up, you guys watched the end of that game. But when I woke up, I, I saw Cal lost by six. You know, they, they didn't they didn't put the, the Bears away. And they allowed that game to go, you know, be competitive for a much further time. So for me, the takeaways are Oregon showed up. And in one of their games, they didn't play their best football. And yet they still won by an impressive fashion. And then they covered a 31-point spread against Colorado. I mean, that that's hard to do, especially at a level where the athletes that are competing aren't professional and their entire day is devoted to preparing for a football game. They have class, they have lives, they have, you know, they've, they've got to practice too. But, you know, there's a lot of other things going on in their lives than a pro athlete, and yet they still did what they were supposed to do and cover a 31-point spread. I think that's pretty impressive. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll wrap up the uh, podcast with the other two questions of the mailbag. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast
Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Three questions in, a couple more to go. All right, this question here was, I saw like 12 different iterations of this, so I thought we had to talk about it. And it doesn't surprise me we got asked about it a lot because I put this prompt up Sunday, and that also aligned with when a report came out that there was mutual interest between Dan Lanning and Auburn. Um, I, will, I will read the question, and we'll kind of get into it. But from at KStokes04, it's rumor season, so let's get it started. Landing is rumored to Auburn. Dante Moore rumored to flip to Michigan State. Do those two things happen? And if so, will the recruiting class follow suit and not sign? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Um, it's always so funny this time of year, just by the way. Like, it feels like, because I got a couple texts from buddies of mine who are like, this is like, I've got PTSD. Like, I think everybody kind of, we'll kind of get into the reason why, believes landing, this thing will be different with landing and he, he, he will stick around. But like, I think there's so many Oregon fans who are just used to going through this because it's been something they've dealt with now twice over the last five years and landing would make three and six that it's just kind of like you just get tired because the team's performing really, really well. You know, everything's kind of going right on the field. And yet there always seems to be some sort of off the field thing that you kind of have to, to fight to, to kind of fight against and, and kind of keeps your emotions all over the place. I, I really am skeptical. I think dubious is the word I saw used on the message board of the landing to Auburn thing. Um, the, our Auburn site has even said they don't think it's particularly reputably sourced. Um, it comes from sports illustrated, which has outsourced a lot of its reporting to basically like fans, like those listening to this podcast could write something for them, presumably. Um, and I haven't seen anybody that I trust saying landing is going to go to Auburn or that that's something you really have to be concerned about. In fact, as we recording this um one of our 24 7 sports insiders carl reed posted something saying don't bet on landing leaving to, leaving oregon for auburn um so i'm i'm pretty dubious of this one i don't think the sourcing is particularly impressive i, I got this i got dm'd a couple of times yesterday texted about this and clicked on the report and saw what it was and who, who sourced it um this isn't like when bruce feldman ties somebody to a job or when like Right. I, I don't know. Somebody who I find reputable ties somebody to a mm -hmm. job. This is a guy who has 650 Twitter followers going into Sunday who is trying to accumulate some sort of attention for his Sports Illustrated post. And it kind of just went flying. So I find that one to be, I don't trust it. I'm not super concerned right now. Do I think Oregon or do I think Dane Lanning and Auburn are, are you know, would there be some interest from Auburn and Lanning? Absolutely, given what's going on. Do I think Lanning would take a call and, and consider it? Maybe. But I think at this Maybe. point, I'm not really concerned with it. And I don't think Oregon fans should either until, like I said, like a, a more reputable source comes out and says this, is, this thing has some steam to it. I do think one of us or somebody will ask Dan about it tonight, and we'll see from her from the horse's mouth. I know Canzano um, has, has spoken to Lanning or – 
feels confident with what he's heard from the landing side of things to say this is not going to happen. But we will at least try to get landing on the record with it. Um, I'll let you guys respond to that one and see if you guys have any other insights or takes on it, and then we can get to the Dante Moore thing. I don't, I don't have any any more takes on it. I, it's just rumor season, and that's all. And it's S Z N. That's the way it should be. And you know, Dan's going to get rumored all of these places. And Auburn is, a, you know, SEC job. It's it's pretty sought after. I know they haven't been great these last couple of years. And Harson is kind of, well, you know, to not get in any of the of the actual Harson details. He's he's been bad. It just hasn't been well. There's no clubhouse environment there. Um, and so Dan is going to be linked to a lot of these because he's having a lot of success in his first season at Oregon. Um, he's, you know, kept the culture going. I think that Mario Cristobal established, tweaked it to his own personal demeanor um, and just kept things flying here. And they're doing well on the recruiting trail. And we'll talk about Dante more in a second. But, um, you know, a, a class near the top 10, they're, they're, it's, it's going well at Oregon. It's so obviously another team is going to see um, if they can pry him away. But. Eric, you and I talked about this at the airport the other day. Um, you know, if it's a thing of money, Oregon has the cash. I mean, they they basically offered the same contract that Miami did to Mario Cristobal, at least from reports. Um, and I don't think they're going to give – I don't think Dan would get that much just because he's, you know, eight games into his – or nine games into his first year as a head coach. Um, I mean, that didn't stop Michigan State and Mel Tucker, who, again, we'll talk about in just a second. But – I don't think Oregon's you know, athletic department is like that. Um, I think if Dan would say, hey, I would appreciate if I got some more money or if Kenny Dillingham said that as well, I think Oregon would say, yeah, you, you guys deserve it. You guys did really well. Um, is there a chance in a couple of years Dan looks at something like this? Sure. But depending on where Oregon is and how they've continued their success under Dan, if they have continued it or not, um, there's probably only a few – you know, universities in the country that are going to be a better look than Oregon. And it's important to remember that Dan went to William Jewell College. And if William Jewell comes call it, or calling, I don't think they're going to be offering nearly the same amount of money. So I think that helps that he's not from Auburn or Miami or Bama or wherever um, somebody else might have graduated from the SEC that has a head coaching uh, opening and eventually in the future. So, yeah, I think this is all just new age journalism of aggregation and even though the story said that their sources, I, I, it's just a report. I, I think that's anybody could say that and be like, oh, well, maybe, probably they have a phone call, but I, I wouldn't buy anything into it. It was tweeted out as a report, and then the, the story, it said sourced themselves. So it's just, not to be a dick, but bad journalism. Um, and... I don't have any worry right now about Dan Lanning to Auburn. Is it possible? Sure. Could happen? Sure. The probability of it happening, probably better happening, you know, probability of Dante Moore going to a different school than Oregon than Dan Lanning to, to Auburn. And that's just where I'm going to transition to, you know, and I don't think Dante Moore is going to flip to Michigan state. I know the crystal ball got, got put in by a Michigan state reporter. Um, I, I, right now, from what we've heard, from what we've seen, I don't think it's going to flip. Could it happen? Sure. But we, you know, we, we said that when he committed, like, Hey, it's going to be interesting. You know, the, the, the craziest part of the whole recruitment isn't the landing of his commitment. It's when you hit November and signing days, four months or four weeks, six weeks away. And all the pressures of, Oh, do you really want to go that far? Do you want to maybe come here? Maybe 
Ohio State gets into the mix or something, you know, a, a bigger program than Oregon, closer to home, or maybe Alabama or something of that nature, you know, enters the picture and things get dicey. We said this would happen. We, we said that there would be some kind of trigger point where it's going to get a little pressure. Now, is this real pressure right now? Probably not, but it's only going to get amplified a little bit more and more as we get closer and closer to National Signing Day in mid-December. But I still think he he lands at Oregon. Um, and if he does decommit, I, I would think it would be because he wants to follow wherever Kenny Dillingham is going to go to be the head coach if that happens this season. And so that would require not only a flip of Dante Moore to Michigan State in this scenario, but also Michigan State firing Mel Tucker and hiring, hiring Kenny Dillingham. That feels very highly unlikely. Um, I, I don't put stock into either of these right now. It doesn't mean it could change, but right now there's there's my level of worry is minimal for both. The I think some of the origin of the uh, uh, Dante to Michigan State stuff, like his high school teammate Jonathan Slack, I think just what he committed there recently. Is that is that what I'm, I'm I saw someone post on he is committed there. I'm trying to find the date when he actually verbally committed. Um, to see if it aligns with something recent. I, I, I'm confused a little bit on kind of the reporting on this one as well. Um, I, I, I'm with you on this one. I don't have a whole lot to add. You're, you're more dialed in with recruiting. I was surprised that Michigan State would be the school, to be honest, that he would go to. Michigan was a lot more involved in Dante's recruitment um, initially, um, along with like Notre Dame and Texas A&M. So Michigan State would feel kind of like an out-of-nowhere school which would kind of confound me a little bit for a player of his caliber to frankly go there. Michigan State lands basketball recruits like this. Very infrequently do they land football recruits of this caliber. I know he's in the state, so that might change things. But I, I'm, I'm also somewhat skeptical of this one. And the fact that it's not – like, it, I'll give a similar answer to what I said about the landing thing. You know, the, the equivalent of a Bruce Feldman on a coaching search or like a Pete Thamel – would be like a Steve Wiltfong or a, you know Greg Biggins or something for a 24-7 sports recruiting crystal ball. Until I see one of those guys flip their crystal ball or communicate much of any concern, I'm going to withhold really giving this thing much credence. I'm in, yeah, I'm in the same boat as you, Eric. It's like, like, like Matt said, could it happen? Sure. I mean, it's, recruiting is volatile. It's You're dealing with 17, 18-year-old kids. It's just – they're going to make a decision that if it upsets you, I don't, I don't know what to tell you, man. They're just, they're just high school kids making their college decision. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be that big of a deal in general, but uh, this is a huge recruit. Um, Don, you know, if, if Kenny Dillingham were to leave, like Matt said, I think there'd be more of a chance that he follows him. Um, I don't, again, I think if any of us want to get actually worried about a coach leaving, I think it'd be more Kenny, but we'll, we'll see about that in the future. I think, Oregon would be very wise, and I think Kenny would be pretty damn wise to stay another year or two just to increase his draft stock, basically, and see what he can do with Dante Moore. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's rumor season. It's the hot stove. It's literally the hot stove in baseball right now. But it, these are, these things are just going to happen. Um, I wouldn't put too much thought into it um, until, like Eric said, until there's a as someone who's got really deep ties and connections with with a lot of programs and a lot of agents. I think agencies and program ties there are what really separates yourself from just knowing the coach and knowing the program. 
Yeah, just my last thought on both of these. Um, I try to think of how to put this. Like, I have one of my good friends will constantly send me what, what ends up being false screenshots of tweets that are like, this incredible NFL trade is happening. And then I'll go find it and be like, oh, that's actually a fake account that's just trying to get you to like troll you basically to believe it. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that's what any of this is, but there is a level of like internet literacy that I think and social media literacy that we're like kind of trying to learn and understand. And I just think you have to, I'm just trying to bring the point together. Like my, my, my big takeaway in all of this, and it could be I'm wrong and both of these things end up happening and it's just a really dark day. But I, I think this is really one of those consider the source situations for both. Like, I'm not, I don't want to call out our 24 seven sports Michigan state guy um, because I trust him more than this kind of random, but seemingly unpaid sports illustrated contributor. But I don't think either of them are what you would describe as being the wealth of information or knowledge that you would get from, like I said, a Bruce Feldman or somebody of that magnitude in the coaching search or a Steve Wilfong or a Greg Biggins or someone like that in a recruiting search. So I, I think when you go through this, rather than stress out and freak out and go, oh my gosh, Oregon's lose its coach and its five-star quarterback recruit, kind of like vet where the information is coming from for a moment. I think that's worth your time more than, than being too, too, too concerned um, would be my just kind of like final takeaway over this entire discussion. I mean, Jared said recruiting's fluid. That's 100% accurate. Coaching rumors happen every single year. And as we've seen, coaching, you know, at Oregon, coaches leave. And you got to go in knowing, hey, these topics are going to get brought up. And like Eric said, just look at who's reporting it. Look at the, the, you know, how valid those reports have been in the past from from that said reporter and make your judgments there. These, this isn't going to be the last time we're going to talk about Dan Lanning being linked to another school or some high profile recruit being linked to flip from Oregon to another place. It'll probably come up multiple times between now and signing day, which is a little over a month away. And just like Eric said, just keep your head level head. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. All right. Last one here. And it ties into a little bit about the person we were just talking about. And that's Kenny Dillingham. I thought this was just kind of an interesting discussion just to have to kind of wrap it up. Um, from at Robbie Parnes, who's one of our, I guess, Hall of Fame question askers. He's probably, if someone were at home to tally up all of our mailbag podcasts over the last several years, I think he's probably had a near the most asked. So uh, another, I think, good question from Robbie. Who has been the better coordinator in their first year at Oregon? Andy Avalos or Kenny Dillingham, hashtag got some audibles. And on face value, And because we're creatures of the moment, I think a lot of people would scoff and say, well, that's silly. It's clearly Dillingham. And I think my answer ultimately is Dillingham. But I also think we have to remember how good that 2019 defense was and how we were talking about that defense in 2019. Mm -hmm. And we were having conversations of like, could this be one of the best, maybe the best defense in 25 years since the game green defense? Could it be better than that? I mean, statistically, it was near the top. I know stats aren't real, and we shouldn't talk about them on podcasts. As Dan said, though, hate to bring stats it up. Stats are for losers. Stats are for losers. So we're going to be a so. couple. We're going to be a couple losers here for a moment. Um, in 2019, under Andy Avalos, Oregon's defense was ninth in scoring defense, 22nd in total defense, and 13th against the run. So that's a top tier, 
top 15, top 20% defense in the country just based upon where those rankings finish. Um, that's a very, very good defense that Andy Avalos put together, and that was a big part of that six season, that season, which ended in a conference championship, ended in a Rose Bowl win. Obviously, you had a very good quarterback on that team as well, but that defense was a big part of it. And you look in the NFL now, and you'll find about half a dozen guys who played on that defense playing in the NFL. Dillingham threw a smaller sample size, nine games. The offense is third nationally in scoring, second in total offense, and 11th in terms of rushing offense. So this offense, I think, right now is performing at a little bit better level if you want to just, again, take a brief snapshot here um, in terms of the national rankings, in terms of the national relevance, <clears throat> has performed a little bit better than what Avalos did. I will also. I think you could also counter that and say, well, this Kenny Dillingham offense is going to face some of the better defenses it faces all season over the next month or so, and potentially into the into the postseason, and that might mm -hmm. kind of lessen this. Like, I would probably be, I wouldn't probably, I would be very impressed if Oregon has the number two total offense and the number three scoring offense when the season is totally finished. That would mean that they have been continuing to stay on an absolute tear offensively, and I imagine there's going to be a team in conference and obviously I think a team or two that they face after that, that give them a, some real difficulties. So um, those numbers might be skewed a little bit, but I wanted to bring the, the topic up because I think the initial discussion is like, no, that's absurd. But I think when you kind of look at it and kind of remember what we were talking about with Avalos about four years ago, it was like, wow, this is really special. And then sadly didn't really get a full feel for the rest of what it would be like with, with it developing because he left after 2020 and 2020 was a COVID year where you lost, what, three or four of your best defensive players before it began, and it was a partial season yep. where you couldn't work on tackling. And the 2020 right. defense took a huge step back, and everybody got bummed out. I, 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 this was more of a, hey, let's give Andy Avalos a little bit of a shout-out and then also talk about how great Kenny Dillingham is answer for me. Um, I think Avalos was fantastic his first year. I think Dillingham has continued uh, to probably impress me more, though, as we've just continued this run. I will always happily give a shout out to Andy Avalos because that 2019 defense was just tremendous. Um, I think he's a great defensive coordinator. I think he's not having the best of time at Boise State. I wonder how long his leash is there. Um, but that I wanted to start with that 2020 season that didn't basically, I don't count it as a season. I know it happened and all these good things, but it's really hard to tell who was really, I mean, Colorado was what four and four and one in conference, four and two in conference, I can't, or four and one overall. Um, they, you know, they've won like three games since it's, it's, it's hard to kind of figure out what really happened in that season in my eyes. Um, but for Avalos that year, uh, they don't get to tackle. There's not really an off season. There's a bunch of NFL draft guys that leave on that defense. You know, if you look back on it and who was coming in, in that, in that recruiting class with Justin Flo and Noah Sewell as true freshmen, who was potentially coming back and basically the whole secondary um, the whole secondary left for the NFL, including Javon Holland and Thomas Graham Jr., the only guy who really came back was D.D. Lenore. You still had Michael Wright. You still had D.J. James. You know, that that defense looked unbelievable on paper. And then you had Kayvon Thibodeau and Jordan Scott came back. It's a shame that there wasn't a full season that's, that year and they, that Andy Avalos wasn't able to get all the credit he deserved for how he performed as a defensive coordinator. That being said... Kenny Dillingham is, is fun. He's really good at his job too. And he has, I, I would argue he has less talent. 
I mean, not to say that Oregon's offense isn't unbelievably talented and they have guys at wide out and Bo Nix is pretty damn good and their offensive line is great. You just look at the, the guys on Oregon's defense in 2019 and 2020, and those are some NFL dudes. And I think there's NFL guys on Oregon's offense this year. I just don't know how many and how many are skill position guys outside of their offensive line. That, that'll come down the, in the future, future NFL drafts and things like that. But I don't know who to give. It was a better first first year run. Um, I think the uncertainty coming into this season with how Dan Lanning's offense would look, I'd probably give that overall to Kenny Dillingham, just because he's been exceptional and you know, there's only been some some brief issues, and those are all kind of minute things, smaller things like pre-snap penalties. Um, red zone things have been addressed and then not addressed. It's a work in progress, it seems. But yeah, I. <sighs> I guess I'd go Kenny Dillingham because he came in without a real court, without a, a true number one quarterback. They had a great offensive line, but it wasn't a true playmaker um, going into it. And then he's just kind of developed all these things to happen. So I, I guess I'll go with Dillingham, even though I, I do love me some Andy Avalos. I don't got much time left, so I'm going to just keep this really quick. Um, 2019 defense brought back eight starters. They were supposed to be the strength of the team. They were, they were special. They were good. Um, 2022, the offensive side of the football was the biggest question mark going into this season. They have been the most reliable, the, the best unit between the two. Um, so I, I'm going Dillingham. Uh, Avalos was dealt a really good defense. He lived up to expectations, but there were, you know, they did what they were supposed to do and then exceeded that. Um, Dillingham's offense wasn't expected to be elite. It wasn't expected to be, you know, maybe the best quarterback in the country, and that's what we are seeing play out. So I, I go Dillingham being more impressive. It's a clean sweep, and I do want to tell you, Jared, Avalos is 5-0 and right now at Boise State in conference, so I think his job might be safe for a little bit longer. That's good. They started out not so hot. Yeah. They've had, some quarterback, they've had some quarterback issues, which I, I understand why they didn't start out so hot, but – was it like the true freshman guy who's come in who's actually been pretty good? I think so. Yeah. So good for Andy. Happy for him. This is an Avalos fan pod. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number one Avalos pod. All right. That's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for submitting your questions. Uh, we'll be back on Tuesday um, with some more college football playoff talk, Dan Lanning's comments. And then Wednesday, we'll be back with a rare podcast on Wednesday where we talk working men's and women's basketball. Um, we've got Brandon Huffman later on coming on this week, talk some recruiting, talk UW. Uh, and then we've got our predictions for the show on Friday as well. So jam-packed week with the podcast. I uh, hope you stick with us throughout the week. Until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend 
or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 